Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. about the show, and I'm going to start by introducing our esteemed panelists today. First off, we've got executive producer, showrunner, Sean Jablonski. Co-EP and writer, Harley Payton. And we've got entrepreneur, futurist, and son of Dr. Hynek, Paul Hynek. Hello, gentlemen. So congratulations on season one. Thank you. It has been quite a wonderful ride to watch those 10 episodes and get to see the story unfold. And, you know, we've got hardcore fans here in terms of investigations. This is a really interesting project because you are dramatizing historical record, but you're making a TV show. And so working as a show that's doing this interesting balance and fine line, what has been your guiding principle in the writer's room to create and craft the series around real things, but have to also make an entertaining show. Well, first, so lovely to be here. We did this last year, and we just absolutely love the convention, love the audience as well, and we share the same... We share all of the same enthusiasm that I think anyone who is in this room probably does about the phenomenon and Blue Book especially. I can say that every one of us on the staff sort of walks the walk in that way. We're not just writers who got a job. All of us sit in that room and trade stories. And as a matter of fact, and I'll answer your question in a second, but even our creator, David O'Leary, who's not here today, when we first met, I think I got a parking ticket because we sat in a diner so long that my card expired, you know, trading stories. So to answer part of your first question, how we approach it first is the utmost respect for the history of it. Blue Book comes with such a wide array of cases for the time that it was, you know, in operation. That is where we start. We look at what are the best cases out there. We go, what is going to tell a really great, interesting, compelling story and sort of move the mythology of not just the history of what was going on at the time, but also the understanding of what we think about when we think about UFOs. But also, look, it's a show about Alan and Ed Rupeld, or Michael Quinn, as we call him on the show. And understanding who those two characters are and how they relate to each other is as important as well. Because as you said, it is a TV show. And we take our inspiration from the cases. But as Mark Twain says, you never let facts get in the way of telling a good story. Um, (laughs) As someone who has worked on numerous other shows and cop shows as well, any cop will tell you 95% of their job is paperwork and it's pretty boring. And so we are inspired by the history. Everything you see has some historical accuracy to it, but I indulge. We indulge. I think it's necessary to do that as much for the fans who are coming to it because of the phenomenon as much as the people who want to be entertained. But especially for this audience, want you to know that we have the utmost respect for not just Blue Book, but the phenomenon itself. And, you know, we also want our ratings. So... 
And I think it's really been great, especially in the last year, and especially with the avalanche of television that we've had, that one of the really interesting kind of micro niches that have come out of it are shows like Blue Book. And if any of you guys watch Chernobyl or The Terror, which has got a new anthology on the Japanese internment, you were really getting a chance to also look at time periods using genre to really be able to not only tell the stories of the people and the period, but then I think that there's so much that can be said about today. And I think we're seeing a lot of that, especially in what you guys are doing with Blue Book as well, in this uh, world of fake news, in this world of conspiracy theories. So you live the art, but you also want to say something through the art as well. Tell me about how you and Harley work in the writer's room, trying to just draw some parallels that make people think. On one level, it's very easy because so much of what is in the news today when you talk about, you say, fake news, and that we like to say that Blue Book was the original fake news. It was designed as a way to say the Air Force's position was UFOs can't exist, therefore they don't exist. And so when you look at that in the framework of what's happening to our modern audiences and the idea of fake news, the Russian influence that we see, the Korean War at the time, I think Korea wasn't very much in the news, Um, but just the paranoia as well that existed in this sense of like, how do we trust our neighbors? It's just a very easy sort of way to do it. We try not to hit it over the head. We feel like it's there and a modern audience just kind of sort of picks up on it. Yeah, you always have to deal with the concept of official truth and the truth behind it. And I think that's what we do in every episode. I mean, my job is primarily to say I'm old enough to remember. That's, <laughs> that's how I come to it. You already blew my show CSI paperwork. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I think for us, that's what we're dealing with, is trying to get to the facts behind the facts. And there's something very contemporary about that, obviously, that resonates, I think, certainly in the room, and I hope in the show itself. So, Paul, you grew up in a household where your parents' work was every day. You know, this was your reality and the conversations that they were having about their work and such. Now you get to see your family dramatized in a way that's got to be a whole new level of surreal or weird. Or (laughs) what was it like watching season one uh, and just kind of knowing that this is a version of your family and getting to see it done this way? Hello, everybody. Um... As I mentioned in a panel I just did with my brother, Joel Hynek, who's right there. Hey, Joel. Oscar-winning big brother. It's not super creepy at all to have the supervillain from Game of Thrones play your TV father. (laughs) You should all try it. You know, it's been a fantastic experience because, as Sean was alluding to, it's the authenticity that's important to my family. Hardcore UFO buffs say, hey, look, it wasn't the Gorman dogfight, it was the Fuller dogfight, and they banked left instead of banked right. By and large, people on the street say, but what's that stuff about your mom and that Russian spy? (laughs) Well, you should see the stuff they left out about my family. So it's this really interesting experience of an authentic look at my father, who is a scientist, who didn't believe much in the UFO phenomena, who came to accept the value of the accumulated data. Everything else is fine-tuning. And works of fiction like this and Close Encounters, the prior sort of Hynek family business movie, do a lot to expand the tent. You know, it's sort of an echo chamber of us UFO buffs, but to really move the needle in the conversation on a national level, it takes a work of fiction. And Major Quinn's character is sort of an amalgamation of the Project Blue Book directors, and I would be remiss were I not to mention that I learned from Arturo Interian, formerly of history and now of MGM, a great mensch, that Lieutenant Colonel Robert Friend, who was the last surviving Air Force Project Blue Book director, passed away yesterday at the age of 99. 99. 
Wow. He was a true American hero. He's a Tuskegee Airman. He worked on Project Blue Book and the space shuttle. And Arturo and David O'Leary and I were at his 99th birthday party. And this was a man who just had this gleam in his eyes. And I told him a joke that I'd heard about George Burns. George Burns was famous for wanting to live to 100 years old. And somebody asked him, Mr. Burns, who really wants to live to be 100 years old? And George Burns replied, ah, someone who's 99. (laughs) Oh, well, that's such a loss to the community and history, but what a legacy he left behind. Um, When you are a consultant on a show like this, it's really about the subtleties. It's about the things that you can tell these writers that you then see folded into a performance detail in a production design and an office and such. So as you were uh, working with Sean and David O'Leary, the creator who's not here today, day. Um, when you were talking to them or even talking to Aiden about your dad, were there any little things that you saw as the season progressed that made you, you know, go, oh, hey, you know, that's something that came out of a story or something that was a little element that you saw that somebody uh, made sure to weave into the show this year? Yeah, they, you know, Sean and David and Aiden and Laura, who are our TV mom and TV dad, asked us a lot of questions and they solicited a lot of pictures, especially from Joel about my dad's pipes and briefcases and how he looked and things like that. And I gave Aiden a tie that my father wore and a turquoise brooch that my mom had to Laura. And I, I gave this to her at the beginning of the season. I forgot about it. And it came up in 10. And sometimes I'm watching the show, and as Sean and I were talking about, you sort of forget that it's about your parents or that's something that you created. I'm watching the show, then I hear Alan. Oh, that's right, that's my father. Then I see that brooch that I gave to Laura before the season. I said, that's my mom's brooch. So you have these kind of weird sort of piercing the veil between the sort of entertainment alter reality and the reality at home. The detail work that you guys did this season, I think, is one of the hallmarks of the show. It's a beautiful period piece. It is a show that you can just get lost in the frame. And tell me a little bit about being able to tell the story with the authenticity and the look that you wanted. Not all shows get a chance to hit the heights that you guys have. And I think that's been such a beautiful element to the show that has added to us getting immersed in the Hynix world. Yeah, look, we got very, um, should I say, lucky. We have such a wonderful, experienced crew that it's like everybody has to bring their piece. You know, our DP, our director of photography, Kim Miles, who is just an outstanding cameraman and his entire department, really helps set the look and tone of the show. If you watch it on most TVs, you'll see that there's a slight cropping or a letterbox to it, which gives it a little more cinematic feel. Mm -hmm. I just had a meeting the other day with our costume designer, and she had all of these fabrics that she was showing for Mimi's new looks this year and to an outfit they were being made you know so we're not even getting these dresses or clothing a lot of times from consignment shops or anything like that these are actually original material that's being inspired by our costume designer production designer as well a lot of research goes into it we have a really wonderful i'll say this lovingly ocd prop guy <laughs> who will walk onto a set and say that toaster didn't exist until 1954 it cannot be in this kitchen <laughs> so it just comes from a dedication and a commitment by all of the professionals on the show that bring this sort of authenticity to it. Paul, it's always interesting in that, you know, your family was immersed in this from a childhood, but, you know, even like a family member that has lived in a very religious household and decides, ah, 
that's not for me. And then maybe comes back around to it. Were you always all in? Was this always for you a moment where maybe you moved away a little bit from what your mother and father were doing and then came back to it on your own as you hit teens or adult? Or has this just always been a path that has uh, fascinated you? Yeah, for all of us kids, it was just super boring. I mean, come on, it was fascinating. It's awesome stuff to have, you know, UFO witnesses come to your house or ornaments on the Christmas tree that are flying saucers. You know, Isn't there someone who was giving you a million dollars to, what was that story? Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was a guy who said he was from Orion, who I figured out he's really from the Pleiades, who didn't have chump change at all. <laughs> he promised me a million dollars, he didn't come through, and he also said the CIA was afraid of him. Hate those guys. <laughs> yeah, so do I. It was fascinating. Um, my father was a scientist, first and foremost, and UFOs were his part-time job that grew into sort of a passion play. And he really had a scientific attitude, and really that's what he inculcated in us the most, was just have this open mind about science and the scientific method, and really a sense of curiosity about the world. And then UFOs, which sort of the icing on the scientific cake. What do you think he'd think about a show being made about him and your mom and, uh, and Joel? He's the one child that's in it right now. I think my dad would love it. I think he'd think it's a great adventure. I think he'd have a lot of fun with it. And about my brother Joel, the character in the show is great, but there's also a richness behind the real life that I think they might be able to inculcate over time. Joel wasn't as much of a Flash Gordon fan as he is in the show as he was of making nitroglycerin in the basement. <laughs> And jet engines in the backyard. He's kind of a mad scientist that way. That's genuine conflict, guys. You need to run with it. (laughs) (laughs) It's part Um, of his arc. Yeah, it's coming. Sean and Harley, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you got 10 episodes. There's 12,000 Project Blue Book cases, 700 unsolved. You had to whittle down a tremendous amount to craft your first year. And so tell me some of the favorite things that you guys got to put on screen this year. David and I sat in a room and just went, bring in all your favorite Blue Book cases. And we wrote them on index cards and we put them up on the wall. And we spent about a week just sort of going through all of these seminal cases that Blue Book investigated as well as some that they didn't. And of course, we take place right now in 52 and 53. So that limits your scope a little bit, a lot. Um, Yeah, no Phoenix Lights. We're not doing the Phoenix Lights. Um, When we started looking at the cases, some of those cases, like we did, what I would say was maybe more of an homage to Betty and Barney Hill only because of when it took place and we looked and loved a lot of those details but the idea of exploring a marriage between two people who suffered that kind of trauma through an abduction well to me as a writer you go if you're looking at a couple that's exploring their marriage and the trauma that that creates the other marriage in the show is Hynek and Mimi and also Hynek and Quinn and you go how can you relate these stories together what sort of trauma are they all dealing with at the time And so that is how you want to sort of pull story together. I'll say personally, also, I'm fascinated by all the sightings over nuclear test sites out in the desert, you know, not just here, but overseas. And I thought that was a story that needed to be told. And I think we found our way in through the green fireballs. You know, it's hard. You feel like, you know, a kid in a candy store. There's so many wonderful things. And Sean's being modest. He and David did so much work before that writer's room even opened. That when we walked in, we had so many cases to choose from, and every case is like a sandbox. And you're going to get in there, and you're going to play. And Lubbock Lights, for me, was one of those things. And you get to learn about the people, and you try to find those moments. I love writing moments between Hynek and Quinn and try to work on those kind of character things. But also, you learn things like they sold you know, bomb shelters made of balsa wood. Yeah. Like, it seems <laughs> Out of hardware stores, yeah. Yeah, that you could buy at a hardware store. So even getting in and doing some 
that research becomes fun too because you're, you're not just creating a world, but you're also honoring a world. So there's, that goes into it as well. I think those are the moments that I really love as well because it's the nuance. It's the things that we don't learn in our history books when we're in school. It's the day-to-day living of what it looks like to be of that time period, the paranoia, as you said. What does that look like? Well, it looks like people going to a hardware store and, and yeah. building something ridiculous in the backyard that's not going to do anything, but it's a panacea. It makes people feel better. Those are the things that I think where you learn the mindset and you really learn and get to uh, swim in that time period also the Heinequin of it all. You certainly, you know, are getting two tremendous actors with Aidan Gillen and Michael Malarkey. But, you know, hey, you can hope that a show is going to live and breathe by that, but it's really only in the seeing of it and as the episodes go along. And the two of them together have been really exceptional. And so what were some of your favorite moments writing for them, either individually or when they were together for this season? Some moments that you felt really kind of helped illuminate them as people as the 10 episodes went along? There's quite a few. Um, They just have this wonderful sort of rapport it's i think i called it out yesterday it's a little butch and sundance or maybe you know spock and kirk kind of Uh thing what's really a wonderful process to watch is as they get to know each other you're getting to understand their rhythms how to write for them and it's this evolving process so that by episode 10 you really feel like you understand and there's like this one it's a silly moment they're walking down the street but they're talking over each other but it's the kind of banter you can only get when you're comfortable with someone and you're not precious about things and you're being very authentic those are the fun things and they inspire you to sort of keep writing because a lot of times when you cast an actor especially at a level of where Aidan Gillen is you're not literally going to know what the words sound like coming out of his mouth until he's standing in front of the camera on day one of shooting because these are people who generally are at a level where they don't have to audition you wouldn't ask (laughs) you know Brad Pitt to come and audition for a role you're going to get Brad Pitt so you get someone like that and then you go oh my God, please let them be good. Please let them be good. Please. And then you watch them together and it's like, we have a TV show. It's like the most wonderful moment. And I'm so happy to say this as someone who has worked on the other side of it as well. Two of the nicest human beings Mm -hmm. you will ever meet. I mean, really. The whole cast, but particularly Aiden and and Michael are just wonderful people. To me, it's two guys who are looking up at the sky and they don't know what's going to come out of it. And that allows for conversation about both what's coming out of the sky, but also what's happening in their lives. And even now as we get into the second season and they know each other even better, you get to get into some of those things as well. And because the rest of the cast is so wonderful and you've got Mimi and Susie and all these characters that you want to write for. It's not just you want to watch them on a weekly basis, but writing for them is such a privilege. So, yeah, those are the moments for me that I kind of lean into if I can. Was there a moment for you, Paul, just as a fan of the show, where you were falling in love with the show's version of Heinequin? I'll pick up the scene about buying the balsa wood bomb shelter. TV mom goes into the hardware store, and the condescending male clerk mansplains to her that she needs to have hubby there to do it. (laughs) And the folks let me punch that line up because my mom had a very strong character, and she was not to be talked to like that. And so what aired in the episode was her saying, well, wifey wants to build it now. (laughs) And so I got texts from two of my relatives saying, that's exactly what Mimi would have said. I said, yes! That's amazing. Well, let's talk a little bit about Mimi because, you know, as a woman of her time, most women were homemakers. They were home with the kids. And she's really a woman that's in the first season, which I love, is showing that she's struggling with that. She's struggling with not only the separation from Alan being away from the house, but knowing that there is a different and another place for her. 
knowing that she was such an important collaborator with Alan and that they became a partnership with this, there's such a great arc to be able to work towards. And I know it's been really important for you, Sean, to be able to craft her as a woman that is of her time, but is going to be a woman out of her time. So tell me a little bit about being able to craft that and what Laura's done to help elevate that. The inspiration comes from the real life Mimi Hynek, who, as Paul said, was very much involved in her husband's work, edited his papers. You can speak more to this, but it was something we felt very early on that this was not someone who is just there to have dinner waiting when he comes home. Again, it's not honoring the people that we're trying to tell stories about. It's the authenticity over accuracy, I think is what we like to say. Starting her where we did, we had to give her a journey. We didn't want to start her in a place where she was already way out there and in charge and taking over and feeling a little maybe out of place for the larger tableau we were doing. So we gave her a great arc last year. Love seeing how she stood up, not just to her husband at times, but just to the world in general. And I can say that where we're going next year, we're really embracing who the real Mimi was in terms of her active involvement in the cases and her perspective on things. And I think that's a part that wasn't present as much before, because now that she's sort of brought into the fold, having the perspective of a woman in the 50s who is watching all of this going on and the secrets and all of that and having her input, I think is, you know, it's been an exciting journey. And Laura is such a wonderful actress, what she brings to the role. The arc in the show kind of mirrors her personal development. I mean, she dropped out of college to marry my father, who was a professor, and she had never lived alone. I think it was a little bit intimidating for her at first. And she was a home economics major. And I teased her about that, to which she replied, as she did many times in my life, oh, dry up, dear. (laughs) Because she had this unquenchable thirst for knowledge, and she was always learning. But this was a different time, and over time, she became much more assertive. My father was gone a lot, so my mother was in charge of the household, and she was very physically strong. She would move these huge boulders that I wouldn't think about moving. So she just had, I wouldn't say a domineering, but just a very strong personality, very uh, independent, and could get things done. And I think the show is echoing that that she did. Towards the later years of her life, she was involved in so many things. She was the president of the Cook County League of Women Voters. She helped desegregate the schools in Chicago. She helped with the juvenile court. And then in Phoenix, Arizona, a whole lot more groups. This community obviously knows the Heineck family, but the rest of the world may not have known them as well. And that's really the wonderful thing about being able to kind of take that beacon and make it stronger. You know, consulting on a show is always interesting because consultants can be in name only, especially with adaptations. But in this show, the Heinecks have definitely had a lot to say about their family. 100%. They get every script. They're, you know, weighing in. And we're checking with them a lot of times on certain accuracies. And like I said, I'm to the point where we're getting wardrobe that our cast can wear so when Joel and I had our first meeting with Sean and David we felt very comfortable with their approach to the project and clearly this is not a hatchet job this is a respectful look at my father's work and my mom as well so there really wasn't much we wanted to hold back or felt we needed to hold back except of course for the many embarrassing things in Joel's past Coming soon. (laughs) Well, we are at the time where we can start taking some questions from you guys. We'll start right here. Okay. Uh, I have a question for uh, Sean, and the second part is for Paul. So concerning the episode with Werner von Braun, specifically the part I'm sure a lot of our favorite scene was when the grave was uh, shown in the test tube looking tank. How steeped in nostalgia was that scene? And for Paul, was there anything to that account from anyone about something similar happening throughout the course of your father's life? I don't know that you'd be able to find a record where there was somebody who had certainly Hynek stumbled across the alien in the tank. Um, Von Braun does mention later that it was the monkey Albert. There were a couple monkeys 
that got sent up into space, right. both named Albert, I believe. And so when we were looking for a moment that delivered a good shock, but also kept it grounded with a real world explanation, which is where I think our show tries to live, it felt like a great opportunity to kind of do that. Did we make the monkey a little bigger? Did we stretch the features a little bit? Of course. But ultimately, I think when you look back, or if you're those characters and you look back and you go, oh my God, okay, so there is a real world explanation for that. It's Albert. And I will say that as the writers, we wanted to go, yeah, that's Albert. My father did meet Werner von Braun. I don't really know much about those interchanges. Joel may know more, but I know that they did meet. Thank you. Hi, uh, I just want to say I, I appreciate the creative direction that you guys went with the show because I know you got to keep the public entertained, people that may not even know what Project Blue Book was. But with that said, you know, we all know that Hollywood has the fantastical version of Aliens Down Pat, movies like Alien, Arrival. There's a tendency, I think, for, I don't know whether they're afraid, but we don't see many realistic depictions of the alien situation based on what whistleblowers have been telling us for years. I don't think it is, but would you say it's a fear that it wouldn't keep people in the seats? Or did you like possibly feel pressure from outside elements that may not want too much truth to be out there? Good question. Yeah. You named some great movies, and yeah, they take a very sort of larger-than-life approach to the idea. I think we try to approach it case by case, honestly, at times. I can say, looking at season two, where we're going, I think we address in a little more grounded way what you're talking about, for sure, because I think the show allows us to do that now. What we've set up when you have the government, as well as Blue Book, even the CIA later on, we have opportunities to kind of do that. But I also think we want to, as you say, put butts in seats in that way. And there's so much information out there and so many ways to look at telling the story that I think we want to try to embrace the best of the elements that we can. Um, stick for season two. I, honestly, I, I'm not just saying this. I think we do address that, for real. And I admit, in terms of movies in general, I know Paul's worked on a lot of movies. It's kind of more of a general question, but do you feel that way, Paul? I've been sort of on the business end of visual effects of movies, so whatever politicking went on into the sausage factor, the origin of those movies, I don't know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take the gentleman over here. Yes, my question is for Paul. Did you ever have a time where your dad came home and it was an unsettling demeanor about him, like he was scared perhaps and you felt it? I remember one time he came, he didn't come home, he came down the stairs and found me passed out from being drunk the night before on the stairs. <laughs> Season four. Yeah, that was a little unsettling for him. But no, I don't, I don't know if Joel has any knowledge. But it wasn't so much any particular one particular case or any one event. I know he mentioned uh, Lonnie Zamora, the Socorro case in 1964, as sort of the straw that broke the camel's back to sort of really release his floodgates. But it was really the overall weight of the evidence. So there weren't, as far as I can recall, signal events that had that much impact on him. So you never came home as if he was scared of a particular case or you never felt as if your dad was uneasy or anything like that? Well, because he was in charge of the global network of the men in black, he really felt he didn't have to... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Thank you. How many of all of you on stage believe that something's going on? And if something's going on, and I know this, this is a general question, hard to answer, do you lean towards the malevolent or do you lean towards the benevolent or do you lean towards somewhere in between? Ooh. Easy on the first part, yes. I've been open and a believer in the phenomenon for a long time. And I have this conversation a lot. My girlfriend will tell you maybe too much uh, <laughs> with people that I try to sort of convert in a way. And I always hear the argument of, well, where's all the evidence? And I think everybody in this room knows it's everywhere. The evidence is everywhere and available. It's what you're choosing to see or not see or just sort of cast aside. 
the question about good or bad. I think if it was bad, we'd be in a lot of trouble a lot sooner. So For me, it's same thing. I mean, it's something that I've believed in for quite some time, but I think the benevolent and malevolent I lean sometimes more toward the malevolent. I mean, it's not evil in the doctor evil sense, but I think there's a certain cowardice when it comes to information sometimes, a governmental institutional cowardice. So I think to me, and we write about that sometimes, it's just that that things are probably being kept that maybe shouldn't be. It's why you always hear about every new president, that's the first question they ask. They ask about that and they ask about JFK. Those are the two questions that every president coming in wants to know about. And, you know, me too. I don't think about malevolent and benevolent so much. I think about why they would come here. And as a singularitarian, I believe that other civilizations, if they are extraterrestrial as opposed to interdimensional, have likely had their singularity event where artificial intelligence becomes self-aware and recursively self-improving, and they get technology beyond a point that we can't even imagine. So I just don't understand why they would need to come here. They have everything they need there. I don't really believe so much in an exceptionalism of our species. I don't think they need our gold. I don't think they need our water. I don't think they're worried about us having nuclear radioactive capabilities. Or are they interested in our non-Borg-like concept of individual love? So I get kind of stuck on why they would make the journey here, whether they're coming from away or from just sort of interdimensionally next door. Let's take the gentleman here. Susan, I have a speech issue, so sure. if you can bear with me. Operation Paperflip. Mm-hmm. Towards the end, it was your father and Warner Von Braun. He's an ex-Nazi and wasn't too happy with him. Was that embellished in the UFOs that they re-engineered the day force one of our service members in the UFO and then it looked like a gyroscope and then vanished? Was that a thing or was that embellished? Yes, embellished, again, I think borrowed a lot of, you know, what Bob Lazar has talked about goes on at S4 and, you know, the anti-gravitational stuff. And I think he's even talked very recently about how he replaced someone that they knew died working on some of this stuff. And so again, this is when we talk about that authenticity over accuracy. That is a great moment on TV, right? And for that character, and I think for an audience, pulling it together from these other sources and saying, yes, we can sort of say this is where it came from and we sort of brought it together in this moment. But in terms of did that happen with Von Braun, I couldn't find anything to back that up for you. But I mean, we there's so much history about what the rocket program was, where he came from, what the Nazis were experimenting with. You know, I think it's safe to say that, you know, we're not that far off, in my opinion. So he was kind of a sinister character, not this father of the whole, our father of the rockets. I would submit that back in 1952, 53, when we were exploring the character, especially through the eyes of an Air Force service member, that he's going to have a very different take on a Nazi rocket maker who had only years prior been sending V2s into London, who's now on American soil. So we tried to not paint Von Braun with such a, like a brush. He was a guy who was, you know, just determined to help. And as he said, my job is now to help America. My job is to help us all get to the moon. But I think given the time period, period and the perspective people had, we wanted to explore that through the character. And historically, Paperclip was just fascinating, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's, yeah. So few people even know about it. And when you start just detailing that and talking about this town and just the way it was taken over by the people working there, that's part of our history that probably isn't well known at all. And that part of it that we put on screen, I think, is fairly accurate. Right? Yeah, and very, I mean, that, very. And that was one of the things that for me that was fun about doing that episode. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Hello, my Hello. name's Patty, and I just have a quick question here. Because this show is UFO-based and the life of your dad, how do the actors feel about UFOs? Do they believe? 
they've had an evolving opinion based on the show, uh, which is great. And actually, Neil McDonough plays General Harding on the show. He's a devout Catholic and speaks very openly how since he's been on this show, it's opened up his mind to what is out there as someone who has had a very sort of um, closed system of belief in how the world operates yes. in that way. And it's opened his mind. Having done enough panels now with, you know, Aiden, Michael, Lore, they're all raising their hands now and asked if you believe, so. Michael Harney, who plays the other general, General Valentine, the other general who's thinking of offing my dad's character, <laughs> actually knew of my father's work when he was in college. Really? Yeah. And so he really brought a fascinating take to the project because he wanted to understand, you know, obviously actors don't approach what you might consider a bad character as a bad person. They're the hero of their own story. And one of the things he did to really understand the phenomena was watch deathbed confession videos of people who'd been in the military. He had some fascinating points about if you're in charge of national security and you're always sort of on a wartime footing, is it really bad to snuff one rogue college professor? You know, so it was very interesting. So he really brought a lot of dimensionality to the part. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. appreciate it. For the podcast history, and you guys have been so generous in having almost all of the cast for season one major cast on, and we've talked about that, and we've talked in depth about some of the inspiration and how they feel about it. So if you want to hear from their own words, uh, we've got a lot of good material with them. It's a great podcast, really is. Before the series came out, nobody probably ever approached you about your dad unless they were a real UFO buff. Now that the series is out, are you having problems professionally with opportunities lost or a negative side to this um, popularity? The same kind of thing happened with Close Encounters when that came out and he became more popular in certain circles. A similar question I get to that is, were we teased as kids because of my dad's work? The answer is no. I mean, he was studying one of the most vexing, important problems ever to face mankind, and he came as close as anyone did as an honest scientist. So my friends thought it was super cool, and he was in Close Encounters. That rocked. I can't say what everybody thinks about him and by reflection of me because of that, but everything I've seen is just people think he was a really cool guy, and I must have inherited a little bit of that coolness. But in <laughs> academia, are you kind of scared about being associated with it? Because no, you and I, I'm a professor at Pepperdine now. Yes. The only reactions I've had were people from Pepperdine were thrilled to come to one of the viewing parties <laughs> that I organized for the show. I don't know if Joel would feel different. But I've not felt any negative blowback of any kind at all. Well, that's good. I think that's hopeful for people that are involved and they're afraid to come out with Yeah, and I think it's maybe part of the evolution, sort of yeah. the destigmatization of the phenomena in general. Well said, and uh, thank you. Thank you. So the end of season one, we kind of come to a pivot point, very much reflects what Dr. Hynek was doing in his own career, was that he came in as somebody that wasn't a believer and then really goes on this journey to becoming a believer. And to say to Quinn, no, I didn't throw you under a bus. What I've done is freed us up. To not have the kind of overriding oversight, we can investigate what we need to investigate. So moving forward, that's kind of a, a very soft tease for season two. Were you able to walk into the room for season two? and really be able to open up some stories that I'm sure some of even these fans are waiting to see. I want to watch Harley answer this one. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not getting anywhere near the, any no soft teases for me. I mean, there are a whole worlds to explore and yeah. some that people are probably thinking of and Sean has found some pretty cool ways to get into those, mm -hmm. whether it means going back into the past a little or into the future. I think like any show, when you get into a second season, you gain a certain amount of currency and the license to expand the universe that you're working in. And for us as writers, that's great because you get a chance to do more kinds of storytelling. 
very simply, there are some wonderful cases that we're all going to be very familiar with, some of the more seminal cases that were outside the bounds, not just the Blue Book, but certainly even the, the small time period we have. But because we also look at the conspiracy of the cover-up, sometimes in order to understand where that began, you have to go back to some earlier cases of where that began. And I think we find a way to do that that feels organic to our show without putting our characters in a place where they would never be at the same time. So if you were a fan of it before and you love the cases we had, you'll be even more familiar with where we're going. And it allows us again to dig into the deeper cover-up, which is, I think, also what the show is about. And Paul, in terms of, as the last question asker said, this is a new place of where now there is more of an awareness of your father's work, your family's work, your mother's work. I think one of the great things about television that is based in actual history, I know I do this, I go and I go find books and I go find great stories or resources so that I can start really boning up on even more of the specifics and the realism of the story. Tell me if there's any things that this crowd can go off uh, later on today and some things that you would very much recommend reading about your family or that you guys as proponents in the Heineck family really think help tell even more of the story. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And my father was a big popularizer of science in general. So he would love the fact that maybe somebody watches the show and I don't know what their preconceptions are beforehand, but they become more interested. And I think the show does a really good job in part due to the efforts of senior historian of history, Kim Gilmore, to bring this verisimilitude and accuracy to the background of the events. So each show at the beginning says to learn more about the Fuller dogfight, go here. So I think history does a really good balancing line between presenting a fictionalized, dramatized piece and access and sort of encouraging people to have interest in learning more about the topic themselves. And I'll say one great resource is MUFON. We have some MUFON, MUFON folks is great. here today. Yeah, that's one and website. Love yeah. MUFON. I'm happy to say I'm now the chairman of the advisory board for oh, MUFON. Oh, wonderful. Congrats. And, and want to really direct some of the newfound public interest to serious scientific study and to really expand the tent and bring in new people. Well, I have to thank all three of you for this really wonderful conversation about Project Blue Book. Hopefully you're a little more excited even about season two. Reminding you all that, you know, if you want to binge season one, that it's still available on demand on history. iTunes has the full season if you do a season pass. And it's also available on Blu-ray. So you get to watch all of it in its beautiful high definition glory. So um, please feel free to do that. And of course, if you haven't listened to the podcast, we like to call ourselves the Blu-ray featurettes to each episode where you really get to learn from these guys the creative decisions and then certainly from the actors what some of their interpretations are of what their characters were doing but thank you all for being here today thank Thank you you everybody wonderful audience thank you I'm your host, Tara Bennett, a senior producer for Sci-Fi Wire. Give it up for my wonderful podcast team, producer Kirby Dixon, producer-editor Paul Terry, mixer and master Dave Draper. Thank you very much for all of your downloads, all of your recommendations, letting other people know that the podcast exists. Keep watching the skies. <laughs>